good, didn't it, to do an offertory. <laughs> it has been 18 months since we have done an offertory. I'm so excited about some of these changes. Well, we are in Hebrews chapter 4, and I want to encourage you to turn there with me, if you will. We'll start in Hebrews 4, verse 14. We'll go through chapter 5, verse 11. And if you would stand as we read God's holy word, its inspired word, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but who was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Or every high priest taken from a man is appointed for men and things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifice for sin. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. And because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifice for sin. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was, So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayer and supplication with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered." And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. Let's stop there and pray. Father, as we continue to study your word this morning, especially as we deal with some of the things from this passage I ask that you would open our minds and our ears, help us to listen well, not to be dull of hearing as the listeners were, the readers were of this letter, but Lord, to be ready to receive your word with joy. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, one of the most important themes in the book of Hebrews is that of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 4, 14, calls Jesus our great high priest. And I want to make sure that you understand this afternoon why Hebrews calls Jesus our great high priest. And to do that, I actually want to start by going for a moment to Exodus 28. I'll read it for you. But in the world of the Old Testament, no one taught God's lesson concerning the need and value of a mediator, intercessor, more colorfully, more dramatically than the high priest of Israel. And if you uh, listen to verse 5 of Exodus 28, what we read there is, they shall take the gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and the fine linen, and they shall make the ephod of gold, purple, blue, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen artistically worked. It'll have two shoulder straps joined at its two edges, and so it shall be joined together, and the intricately woven band of the ephod which is on it shall be of the same workmanship, 
It says made of gold and blue, purple, scarlet thread, fine woven linen. I hope you are getting that picture of this very colorful clothing that the priest wore. And you shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six on one stone, six on the other stone, in the order of their birth. And with the work of an engraver in stone, like the engravings of a signet, you shall engrave these two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. Then you shall set the stones and settings of gold, and you will put the two stones on the shoulders of the ephod as memorial stones." And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his shoulders. And so I I want you to have that picture of not only this colorful, dramatic clothing that that had a bunch of different symbols that connected to it, whether it was purity or a majesty, but there were these stones that have the names of the twelve tribes engraved on them. And in front of All of this was a breastplate in which there were 12 precious stones that were set. They also bore the names of the 12 tribes. And so in this way, Aaron as the high priest was said to bear the names of the sons of Israel into the sanctuary in the breastplate of judgment upon his heart and to bring them to, uh, Exodus says, continual remembrance before the Lord. And so they were, so to speak, carried into the presence of God and supported in their weakness on these strong shoulders of the high priest, bound closely to his compassionate and and we might even say empathetic heart, for he was like them. And all of this and more, Hebrews 4 tells us, foreshadowed Christ. No greater encouragement for our faith could be given than that Christ represents us. He bears our names, just like Aaron once bore the names of the 12 tribes. Christ bears our names before him into the presence of the Father in a ministry of mercy. He is compared to the priest that was Aaron. And the same things that Aaron did, so does Jesus do as he intercedes for us, as he ministers and mediates for us. And so we see in Hebrews that there's a practical application of this found in the second half of verse 14. It says, therefore, let us hold fast our confession. You might say confession of what? Well, on a simple level, that would be confession that Jesus is Lord. But on a more uh, complete level, it would be the substance of all that we say and believe or confess as being true of the Christian faith. Well, what would make us not hold fast that confession? I'll put it this way. There are many people who think that Christianity is a way of escape from the difficulties of what they would say are real life. And that confessing Christ is a type of fire insurance, which would be protection from hell, just in case it turns out that God does exist and that all the things that are in the Bible are true. And the person who says that, who says that Christianity is an escape from reality, They need to try to live as a Christian, right? They need to try to wage war against the desires of the flesh. Because I think the true escape is to think that one could go the path of least resistance, the path that everybody wants you to follow, that everyone tolerates, the broad path that the Bible describes that leads to destruction by rejecting Christ and embracing the world. Everyone will accept you. And you'll have, at least in the short term, the sense that everything is just fine. That's the true escape. 
But embracing Christianity, confessing the truth, is a difficult walk down an agonizing path. And it was this cost that challenged the Christian readers who first received this letter of Hebrews. It's really another major theme of this letter that the audience is one who is challenged in persecution, challenged in trial, and some of them are beginning to to fall away and slip away. And so there's something about Jesus being our high priest that should encourage us to keep going. Verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And verse 2 of chapter 5 adds to that by saying, He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, because he himself is also subject to weakness. And we read those, those words and we say, Well, in what way was Jesus weak? How was he tempted like we were and are? Well, first, Jesus was subject to weakness because he was both fully God and fully man. Verse 1 of chapter 5 tells us every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. And if you think about that for a second, it says every, this would include Jesus, high priest was taken from men and appointed for men. He's a representative of his people. And if he's not a man himself, how can he be an adequate representative? And believe it or not, the early church actually for a few centuries struggled with the thought that was Jesus truly fully human? There were other times that the church kind of wrestled through the the aspect of the divinity of Christ. But the humanity of Christ, which you might think, would anyone challenge uh, that it became an issue because they were trying to figure out how could Jesus be all the things that the Bible tells. But it's important, as Hebrews tells us, that we believe that Jesus was fully human, for he represented us. And he's not only subject to weakness because of that, but he was also tempted. A merciful person, even though he may be patient and tender and forgiving, there are many of you out there that are merciful people, still may not be able to understand and fully empathize with those to whom he or she shows mercy. It is possible to be a merciful person and yet be distant and um, unapproachable, really. There are people that seem to have it all together, and, and the people that are being shown mercy and comfort go, Do you really understand my plight? Do you really understand what I'm going through? Well, the author of Hebrews is stressing that Jesus does. That he is a compassionate, he's not only merciful, but he's a compassionate and a sympathetic high priest. Now, when you think about how do you truly understand someone else's plight, it's, it's usually because you have experienced the same things. You've gone through the same trials and tests and, and temptations that they have, And Jesus is able to stand alongside of us in our troubles, Hebrews says, because he remembers what it was like to be incarnated in weakness. Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore in all things Jesus had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted... He is able to aid those who are being tempted. And there it is again, having been tempted. 
Now, every high priest, I think we would all agree, every high priest in the line of Aaron knew what it was like to be tempted because they were all born in sin. They were all sinners themselves, and they had to make sacrifices for themselves, just like every other person before they could be a representative for the people. And verse 3 says, because of this, the high priest was required, as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifice for sin. But what about Jesus? Jesus was tempted in all ways, and yet he was without sin. And so often we focus on that last part, Jesus' sinfulness or sinlessness, and we don't realize how important it was that Jesus was also tempted. Yes, Jesus was without sin. He was perfectly obedient, but he was also tempted as we are. Now, you might be trying to grasp what that means because it's hard for, I think, any of us to imagine without any perspective of sin, could we really think of ourselves being tempted in some way to anger or lust or any number of things? Was that really, truly a temptation for Jesus? I know that that's, that's a conversation that many people have. Well, I want you to think about the wilderness trials, the 40 days of, of testing of Jesus after his baptism. And I want you to ask a question. Why do you think Jesus had to face hunger and thirst and fatigue and defensive people and ridicule, pain? I think the answer is here in Hebrews that because of his experiences, he is able to fully represent us. And the reason why I say that is that when we struggle with temptation, usually it's because we think, like I said, it's that we dwell for a moment on the possibility of choosing sin. And if we think about Jesus, could he have chosen to sin? Did he even consider it? Well, the Gospels present Jesus as the second Adam. And like the first Adam, Jesus as the second Adam, symbolically, began sinless, right? Adam began sinless. Adam was tempted by his wife to join her in sin. He was tempted in the pre-fall conditions of the earthly paradise, but Jesus is tempted in that 40-day trial in the wilderness in the existing conditions of the fall. In the wilderness, in the desert, he's not surrounded by pleasant fruits and beautiful surroundings, right? He is enduring 40 days of starvation and thirst. Why? Again, because Jesus was to be placed on an absolute equality with fallen man, except with regard to being born with a sinful nature. And so he's made tired, he's made weak. He's made lonely, he's made distressed in order to create an environment in which he is truly susceptible, I think, to temptation, truly hungry, so that when the devil comes and says, hey, look, you could turn this rock into bread, the idea of bread after 40 days has got to have been strongly tempting, <laughs> right? So often we think of Jesus as facing just the temptations of man, which is uh, we think in our mind the same things I mentioned earlier. We think of anger or 
or lust or greed or whatever that might be. But I, I think that Jesus' time during that 40 days in the desert present us with an important insight into temptation itself because even though Jesus was wholly committed to the cross as the way he would build his kingdom, yet the devil tempts him. If you look at those temptations, the devil tempts him with avoiding the cross. So he challenges him with things like, well, how can you hope, Jesus, with the principles that you have of meekness and servanthood to convince Israel to follow you? Throw yourself off of this, the roof of the temple. It's already in the rabbinic tradition that the Messiah is going to present himself in the courtyard of the priest with a miracle. They'll immediately accept you. You don't have to go to the cross. Or with the temptation, how can you stand against me and my kingdom, Jesus? Can you really handle being forsaken by the Father? Just worship me and I'll give you everything. And I wonder if day by day the sense of utter loneliness and forsakenness increasingly gathers around Jesus. And if in his increasing weakness brought about by hunger, brought about by the seeming hopelessness and and actually what it really means that lies ahead of him, that there was this overwhelming sense. That's what I think. And and that is the core of every temptation. That we are presented with this. We are presented with the choice. Are we going to elevate our own safety? Are we going to elevate our own desires? Are we going to elevate our own perceived needs above the will of God? That is the heart of temptation. It's at the core of everything that we are tempted by. And if that is the case, then surely... Jesus was tempted, as we are. And he chose obedience. I like how the author C.S. Lewis imagines someone objecting at this point, that we're talking about, with saying, well, like I said, if Jesus never sinned, then he doesn't know what temptation really is. Well, he went on to say, a silly idea is that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later to still be resisting. Right? Think about that for a second. The people who truly know temptation are the ones who have tested and not given in. That is why bad people, he says, in one sense, know very little about badness or what it means to be bad. And Lewis is right. You might say that it is the one who always gives in that lives a sheltered life. And I like what Lewis concludes. He says, Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. You think about that? Put that all together. If the core of temptation is elevating our own needs and desires above the will of God, and if we only truly fully experience temptation in the process of resisting more and more as we are tempted more and more, if you will, to give in, then Jesus, of all people, knows most what it is like to be tempted. He is, as Lewis says, the only complete realist. 
Well, in Matthew 26, 36, we read about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. So that was the first at the, min, at the wilderness. That was the start of his ministry after his baptism. The Garden of Gethsemane is the end. And it says, as Matthew says, that Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. Now, what he had, what he had invited them to do was to invited them to participate with him in that process. They were to watch, but their participation was perhaps to be prayer, it was to be watchfulness, but it was not to specifically minister to his needs. And you might ask, well, why? Especially given that he was sorrowful even to death. Well, I think the answer is that Gethsemane is a final test. Gethsemane, in many ways, is a reenacted desert experience. Because just like in that first conflict with the devil, Jesus, as he enters this last test, is faced with will I elevate my own desire to avoid the cross, or will I subject myself? To the will of the Father. That was the question at the very beginning, and now it's the question at the end. And I understand that from Gethsemane, you can see the city of Jerusalem down below at night with thousands of fires that would have been lit as the city had swelled for the Passover to multiple times its normal size, and so you've got people just even camped out in the streets. You would have seen the fires, uh, little campfires lit throughout the city. It would have been an impressive sight from, from the vantage point of Gethsemane. And I think of Aaron in Exodus 28 bearing the names of the people on his shoulders on those onyx stones and on the breastplate. And then I'm thinking of Jesus as he is bearing the names of the people there. Perhaps even as, as he's looking at those fires, all those little twinkling lights. It says that Jesus went a little farther into the garden, and he fell upon his face, and he prayed. What did he pray? Matthew tells us, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then the next two verses say, Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping, and said to Peter, Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And I think that comment, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, is both a comment on Peter, what he's about to face, what he has been facing, what he will face for the rest of his life. But it's also a comment on Jesus' own struggle. Here he is, man peering into the dark pit, looking ahead at a task no angel could perform. A task no man could, other man could perform. No angel had the power to break the gates of hell, and no other man, save Jesus, had the purity to destroy sin's claim. And here in this moment is this deep mystery of our faith that we confess, these two natures of, of Christ in one, 
one nature, or two, one person, two natures, his humanity, saying, if it is possible, Father, but his divinity saying, not my will, but thine. Hebrews 5, 7 very vividly describes this turmoil. It says in, in verse 7, Jesus in the days of his flesh offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. The flesh was weak in that moment of loneliness, the promise of forsakenness, but the spirit was willing. And while Jesus knew what it was like to be torn between two desires to protect oneself versus submitting to God, he knew the Father's answer just as he knew the answer in the wilderness, and that answer was no, it is not possible. And that's God's answer to us sometimes, too. Paul prayed three times that God would remove whatever the thorn was from his flesh, and and God said, no, I have a purpose. We know that Jesus prayed the same prayer three times. Matthew says, again, a second time he went away and prayed, saying, oh, my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found the disciples asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. The very men whose names he was bearing you know, with him into the presence of the Father, sleeping, unable to stay watch, while he is in agony, crying vehement tears of blood. And so it says he left them again, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Three times. The flesh was weak. But the Spirit was willing. No, no, no. And the rest of Hebrews 5, 7 says that Jesus was heard because of His godly fear. It's alright to be weak. We are by nature weak people. We are people of flesh. But we serve a mighty God and we need to have a godly reverence for the strength and provision of our God. And that is the godly fear that Hebrews describes that Jesus had. And he was heard because of that. Not with the answer of, yes, now it's possible because you've prayed three times. But with the answer that he was ministered to by an angel. And verse 8 tells us that though Jesus was the Son of God, He still learned obedience by the things which He suffered. And that obedience led to perfection. And in that perfection He became, it says, the author of eternal salvation to all who obey Him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And I don't want you to miss that part where it says that He was perfected by obedience. I alluded to this a few weeks ago. Wasn't Jesus already sinless and therefore perfect? Yes, he was sinless. Yes, he was perfect. But if you notice in verse 8, it highlights the fact Jesus was the Son. He was and is the Son of God. And as Son of God, he exists in this triune relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit. But it's one thing to bear the title of Son, and it's another to be a Son. And what is a son but one who has a father? And what is the essence of that relationship if it is not obedience and honor? 
And so Jesus had to be given an opportunity to obey in the face of temptation. To submit his, the desires of his flesh to the will of the Father so that he might make perfect or complete his sonship. And in that moment of Gethsemane, it started in the desert. But in that moment in Gethsemane and ultimately on the cross, Jesus becomes, it says, the author of eternal salvation. And before God, he confirms that he is qualified, Hebrews says, to be a high priest for us. He faced all the temptation, the core of what it means to be tempted like we are. And he arose victorious. So the final question to ask from our passage is, what kind of high priest was he? Was he a priest like Aaron, like we read about in Exodus 28? Hebrews says that Jesus' priesthood was not like Aaron's, but rather was, as verse 11 says, after the order of Melchizedek. And we haven't talked about Melchizedek in years, but he was the priest king of Salem. During the time of Abraham, he appears just very suddenly and briefly in Genesis chapter 14. Listen to what we find in that chapter. It says, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, he Abraham, gave him a tithe of all. And that's it. That's all that we read about Melchizedek in the Old Testament. And you might have been expecting more, especially because we hear his name over and over again in the book of Hebrews. Well, turn the page for a moment to Hebrews chapter 7 and look at verses 1 through 3. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest to the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first, his name being translated king of righteousness, that's what Melchizedek means, and then also the fact that he was king of Salem or king of Shalom, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Wow, that makes Melchizedek sound like some kind of superhero, right? Or superhuman. No mother, no father, no genealogy. But if you've read the early chapters of the Old Testament, you know how important genealogy was to Israel. Knowing which tribe you belong to helped establish your inheritance. Well, Melchizedek was outside of Israel. He was the king of Salem. It was a city in Canaan that would later become Jerusalem. But he was a righteous king. In fact, that, as it says, was his name, king of righteousness. And in not having a recorded genealogy, Melchizedek has no limiting tribal status. Does that make sense? He isn't of the tribe of Levi, he's not of the tribe of Judah or Reuben or any of the other tribes. In one sense, he's above and beyond the tribes. And that's what the author of Hebrews is trying to make the point of. He doesn't have a recorded father or mother or genealogical lineage, and so he's kind of otherworldly in that symbolic sense. And the, what's important is that he blessed Abraham. 
as a priest would, and then Abraham acknowledged that blessing and then paid a tithe to him as he would to a priest. And then verses 4 through 10 there in Hebrews 7 say, Now consider how great this man was, to whom even Abraham gave a tenth of his spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, that's the ones that Aaron is descended from, those are the priests, the Levitical priests, have a commandment themselves. They receive tithes from the people, according to the law, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he, Melchizedek, whose genealogy, it says, is not derived from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And beyond all contradictions, says the author there, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, says the author of Hebrews, who receives tithes from his brethren as priest, paid tithes to Melchizedek through Abraham. So do you see the, the point that he's making? saying, that the priesthood of Aaron was even submissive because of Abraham's submission to Melchizedek, was even submissive to the priesthood of Melchizedek. Just a little more. I know it's tough. Hebrews chapter 8, because Melchizedek is mentioned again, he says, now this is the main point of the things we are saying. And it would be bad for us to be talking about Melchizedek and then not look at this part where it says, now this is the main point of why I'm mentioning Melchizedek over and over again. He says, we have such a high priest. That's Jesus who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord directed and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gift and sacrifice. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. And here comes the crucial point. For if he were on earth... He would not be a priest. And you go, what? what in the world does that mean? What does that mean? Well, the whole point of saying that Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek is not only to say that Melchizedek received sacrifice and offering and tithes from Abraham and therefore Levi and Aaron, but that symbolism of not having a lineage, not having a parentage, is pointing to a timelessness and an otherworldliness. And Jesus is made a priest after Melchizedek because his priesthood is not on this earth. It's not limited to a generation, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Jesus' priesthood is eternal. It's forever. And if he did not possess an eternal life, the author is making the point his priesthood would be no better than Aaron's. It'd just be the latest version of a temporary, short-term priest offering sacrifice on behalf of us. But Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek. He's without end. He doesn't serve on earth. He serves in heaven in the presence of the Father forever. And what does he offer? Hebrews 8, 6 said it is necessary that this one even have something to offer. Well, what does Jesus have to offer as high priest? Well, verse 3 of chapter 5 told us that the high priest offers sacrifice for sin. But you know what Jesus' 
was not a priest in the order of Aaron, and he didn't bring sacrifices of bulls and goats and sheep. His sacrifice was himself. And so he is both high priest and he is lamb. He is both sacrifice and the sacrificer. And because this sacrifice is better, the results are better. They are eternal. And because they are given by an eternal priest, they are forever. The blood of a bull, and that's another thing that Hebrews tries to make out, they never fully satisfy. They were only short term and it was not effective and sufficient forever. But Jesus gave once and for all the sacrifice of himself and it was done. And the good news of chapters 4 and 5 is that when God declares peace with us through this high priestly work of Jesus Christ, when we begin to stand in grace before God's throne, we can have the confidence that just as God declared peace for that moment through that sacrificial animal that was given on behalf of the people, but they had to come back the next day, had to come back the next year. Just as God was at peace, shalom, with the people through that, so through the eternal sacrifice, once for all of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, we are at peace with God forever. This very same God who was a conqueror marching in holy war against you and against me as His enemies is now our Savior and our Helper, and the result of our High Priest's offering is eternal forgiveness of sin. Adoption as sons and daughters of God. The invitation into the holy presence of God. And I'm thankful that we have this kind of dense, difficult section right here in the middle of Hebrews because it really brings out this fantastic truth. It's what makes us able to now look back at the very beginning when it said we have not just this high priest, we have this great high priest. We have the, you know, underscore, the high priest. Nothing better than what Jesus has given us. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed blessed to have your son as our high priest. He was not a son of Aaron, of Levi, who had to conduct sacrifice for himself, for his sin, in order to, for a moment, be cleansed and purified enough to offer sin on behalf of us and through the blood of a bull or goat or sheep and and for us to know this was just a moment, but that our sins would soon put us at odd against you and, and we would have to be atoned for yet again and we would have to have that sacrifice offered. What great news it is that there was a once-for-all sacrifice in Jesus who is not after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek. What great news that our high priest, your son, knows what it's like to be tempted, knows what it's like to be weak, and so he helps us in our temptation. He helps us in our weakness. 
And Father, all of that was made possible because you so loved us that you sent your Son. And though you said no to him in the garden and no to him in the desert, because of his obedience, you were able to place upon his shoulders, the very shoulders that bore our name into your presence, you were able to put upon his shoulders the wrath, holy wrath against sin. And now we stand in grace because of his righteousness. And so all we can say is thank you and praise you and serve you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.